back to the live drop. My guest today is Norman Oler. He's the author of the new book, The Bohemians. Arrow and Libertus Schultz Boys informed an unconventional and enigmatic network of artists and intellectuals to resist the Nazis in the 1930s, 1940s Berlin. This spy tale asked the question of how much we're willing to risk to challenge the status quo and change society. Norman talks about his research and the Nazis' unsuccessful attempt to erase all memory of Haro and Libertus Spiring. Look for us to talk about the unique authentication and flow of information within this ad hoc intelligence network that was never compromised from within. Norman Aller is also the author of Blitzed, Drugs in the Third Reich, and he spoke to me from Berlin. Begin transmission now. My first question, so Himmler did yoga. Apparently. Two hours a day in the morning in his office. I guess he started the fad uh, in the Western world. Well, the Nazis did. They did have ideological relations to um, ancient India, the Vedics. So Himmler was very interested in um, knowledge coming from India. And uh, also he was a vegetarian and the concentration camp in Dachau had the biggest herb garden in Europe. Quite a contradictory figure, I suppose. Or I mean, not a contradictory figure, quite an evil figure uh, with uh, tendencies to live healthy. Didn't the original Aryan race come from India or that? area wasn't that part of their mythology it is claimed that the Aryan race comes from india i mean if you look at the swastika it's an old sanskrit symbol that the nazis just turned around swirls the other way i'm not sure what that's supposed to mean basically they used a lot of occult and mythological stuff to to enforce their political agenda i mean hitler was always critical of Himmler. he always he basically said, this is mumbo-jumbo, we don't really need this. He was more of the practical politician, while Himmler had more of these esoterical thoughts, and the SS was quite an esoterical order in a way. Oh, so he tried to patch an ideology. And- yeah, I mean, it was all about you know the race and superiority of the race. So where does this come from? It must come from a master race, and thought this master race comes from ancient India. He was. He also sent an exit expedition to tibet he was searching for Aryan roots in tibet as well so there's it's it's quite an interesting area of research question about the title of the novel i mean the bohemians it refers to uh originally like the gypsies that they thought came from that region bohemia i mean gypsies come from an area near india as well originally i mean it is the fact that haro and his group had a lot of there were a lot of artists in this in this network and so i referred the bohemians refers to the artists or the intellectuals, the people living in Berlin at the time who had a wide cultural horizon. Um, So it refers to this type of person who suddenly got overwhelmed with an unbearable, very unbohemian dictatorship, which tried to control also the private life with Harrow and his friends did not want have control. They want to live as freely as they could throughout the dictatorship. So their lifestyle really was bohemian, uh, even though Berlin was under the swastika. So that's why my American publisher called it the Bohemians. My German publisher just called the book Haro and Libertas. 30 years later, 1970s post-structuralists in Paris will find a term for this kind of form, the rhizome, R-H-I-Z-O-M-E, gradually developing means of organizing knowledge in a non-hierarchical diffusion. How would that exist today? That sounds like something on social media. I mean, I did describe Haro's group as as a social network. And in that sense, it was quite avant-gardistic and very different from other 
resistance groups, not that there, there were many, but the classical resistance group of the time was the communist or the leftist group, which was tightly organized in, an, in a hierarchical way. And those cells were easily infiltrated by the Gestapo because Gestapo agents just had to wear a mask, being an anti-fascist, and basically apply the, the rules of the group to his own behavior, and he was in. While Harrow's group was based on friendship, so basically had to to send a friendship request to Harrow, but he wouldn't just hit the button and you were his friend. He, he actually invited you to his home. You had to socially mingle with him. And if he thought you were cool, then he would share information with you. So it was quite an unusual way to recruit people in such circumstances, but it, it worked. They never had a traitor among them. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, they were quite avant-garde in the way that they were dealing with each other and organizing the network. So I suppose the advantage of that would be the amount of information that could be gathered. I mean, it's not necessarily focused, but it's more opportunistic. Well, they had bi-weekly parties, actual parties in the big apartment that they uh, rented in the center of Berlin. So to be part of their resistance, you first had to party with them. And if that worked out well, then you get uh, sensitive information about the regime, about the military um, Air Force and I mean, you hear this. I remember a term when I was in college. It's like, yeah, I partied with those guys. It was almost like a certain bona fides, you know, that if you were willing to kind of engage somebody socially or hang out with them, that you did inherently trust them as well. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it was a strategy that was applied in the in the sixties by groups when the private life also was the political life, and you had to, you know, be maybe in a commune in 68 in Berlin and, and practice free love in order to be, you know, trusted politically. So they, they did this uh, in, the, in the late 30s and early 40s. You live in Berlin now? Yes, I live uh, in Berlin, in Kreuzberg, right at the river, which used to divide east and west. So from my writing room where I am right now, I'm looking over into East Berlin. Yeah, when Haro and this group, they were mostly active in the, in the traditional west of Berlin, in the Kudam area, and then in Tiergarten and Charlottenburg, that was their playground. He worked only in um, the main office on Wilhelmstraße, which was Göringstraße at the time. And then at one point, he was in the woods around Potsdam during the war. It just sounded like he had intimate source material. And even some of the pictures, didn't they didn't seem like public pictures. It seemed like they seemed awfully comfortable in front of the camera. They looked like... Oh. Rock stars. I'm just kind of wondering: was this unusual to get that kind of that kind of source material? Well, it took a while because uh, Hitler was careful to destroy a lot of material because he wanted to destroy the memory of this network. Hitler tried to erase the memory of this network, and um, this was done by the destruction of many uh, documents. The strange thing about documents relating to Haro's and Libertas' activities is that they are not stored in an official archive in Germany, but they are stored in the so-called German Memorial of Resistance, which is a it's not a it's not a public body, but it's a it's an institute of research about the German resistance against the Nazis. So you cannot really go there and look at all the documents. You first have to become friends with one of the peop one of the historians who works there, which is very awkward. But I did become friends with one of them, with Dr. Hans Koppi, 
whose parents were actually in the network of Harrow and Libertas. So by befriending him, I was able to access a lot of documents. This was the most important part of the research. The other important part was finding relatives of the people who were actually in the group. And I found three whose parents were active in the group around Harrow. No, actually, I found uh, four because I also found uh, Harrow's niece who could tell me quite a bit about the family. I also found some stuff in Washington, D.C., in the National Archives of the U.S. So Hitler's attempt to destroy all the records was not 100% successful because there were just so many. Like Also, they wrote letters to each other in prison, which some of them smuggled out. Some of them survived, so there was material that got out and was located in different um, places. So it was like a, putting together a, a puzzle. How did they find that poem that Haro had written in his, not to be a spoiler, but in <laughs> in prison that was found af- afterwards? How did they find that poem? It's a bit controversial, and Hans Koppi was not quite sure how it worked, but apparently Harrow became friends with a Polish prisoner who did certain jobs in, in the Gestapo prison, was able to hide the poem behind a wall that was freshly done, I think, and, and told this guy who then, because he survived the, the whole thing, was able to tell Harrow's parents, and, and then they were able to actually find that poem, which is quite unusual, I would say. The poem did survive the, even the bombing, because the Gestapo prison was bombed uh, late, late in the war. So it was it was sitting there for over three years. It's interesting that they their primary motivation was to resistance against tyranny, resistance against the Nazis. Why did they choose the Russians? I mean, were they I mean, were there communist leanings in the Bohemians, or was it just easier to help the? It seems like from your book that it was just easier to help the Soviets than it was to you know provide or contact the people in the West. Well, the Soviets had better intelligence than the Americans at the time, so they were more active actually in Berlin. The Americans had a very good lead into the group to to Arvid and Mildred Harnack. Mildred was an American, but at one point they just lost interest and their main contact person was uh, left in Berlin and the Americans never uh, rebuilt that contact into the group. While the Soviets were very interested in keeping the contact to the group, this was one reason. Another reason was that Harrow thought that if there was an army that actually would destroy the German army, the Wehrmacht would be the Red Army, which was a fair assessment. I mean, in the end, it was Germany really did lose the war on the Eastern Front. Um, so Hiro thought it's very important to leak information to the Soviets, which would, in, which would help them. And also he thought if Germany wins against the Soviet Union and has access to the oil, the huge oil supplies uh, in the Caucasus region, then the Nazi... Uh, tyranny would be uh, would be unbeatable. So he thought it's it's crucial to help the Soviets. And another reason was that indeed within the Bohemians there were leanings towards uh, socialism, even communism. Uh, some of the members were communists, not not a lot, but it was more of a leftist than a right wing group. I mean, they were opposing a right wing regime, and Harrow certainly had leftist tendencies, even though he stated to his mother in a letter, I'm not a communist, because his mother was normal German housewife, very afraid of communism. So he made that clear, and that was a true statement. He was not a communist, but the group in itself was more of a leftist liberal group than a conservative right-wing group. 
it seems like his concerns were more geopolitical strategy then. Yeah, right. And, and also at the time, people didn't know about the atrocities that Stalin committed, at least not like we do, we know now. I mean, the Soviet Union had not developed into an evil empire into which it actually did develop later on. So for Harrow, the Soviet Union was uh, an, an interesting experiment and, and a country that he hoped the best for and, and wanted to succeed. He was very he's very skeptical and critical of capitalism, actually. He didn't think that capitalism would work. So he thought probably socialism works better. It was maybe a little unintended humanism given to Stalin in some ways. Like he, he was just, he could not believe that he, when he got the intelligence that Harrow had, you know, was partially responsible for that the uh, Germans did intend to invade the USSR, um, Hitler's or, or Stalin's response was, was interesting. Yeah, he actually he was absolutely sure that his pal, not his pal Hitler, but his fellow dictator Hitler, who's you know, made a treaty with him that Germany would not attack the Soviet Union, would, of course, respect that treaty, which which is totally absurd to believe that Hitler would be an honest man because Hitler broke his promises all the time. So when he was actually, when Stalin actually got the information that Germany would attack the Soviet Union and got the specific date through Harrow, he just couldn't lose face. He couldn't admit that maybe he was wrong and that, that maybe he would actually have to be ready for a German attack. He just said, this information is wrong. And um, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this uh, on, in American media, but he... Oh, no, go he ahead, called, yeah. <laughs> I think he called Harrow a son of a bitch. Yeah, he said something about his mother. He said, I think, no, I think, I think he said he's the son of a whore or something. So he was really very personal and mean and uh, childish also or ridiculous. Big, big mistake because the Soviet Union lost a lot of men a lot of territory in those first weeks because they were ill-prepared for Stalin believed this would never happen. And he was in a way close to, similar to Hitler with, in, in, in a sense of, you know, not really looking at reality, but only looking at his ideas and ideology and kind of believing that this would be, this is the, this is how the world goes. You know, this is a, a problem that autocratic leaders often face. Yeah, imposing their reality on a, on a, on a world that doesn't... Uh, he wrote in here that Stalin had said, uh, I mean, when there was proof that the Germans were in, invading into Belarusia or something, he said, don't tell Hitler. <laughs> no, yeah, no, he said, I'm sure Hitler doesn't know anything about it. <laughs> yeah. There were like already 2 million German soldiers in his country when he still didn't believe that it's actually happening. I lost a lot in those first days, you know, it's like the pandemic starts and you don't react. Yeah, the pandemic is an analogy of the invasion of Russia. I want to talk about the s structure of, of the book as well, but um, you wrote it in present tense for the most part. I was just wondering about your decision, why, why you decided that as opposed to past tense. I already wanted to write Blitz in the present tense, but the historian I worked with, said I should not do it. Uh, it would sound more sophisticated if it was written in the past tense, like a historical nonfiction book. But this book, The Bohemians, really tells a tale. It tells a story. I, I was trying to move us, the readers, right into the scene, Berlin in the late 30s and, and 40s. So I thought the present tense is more direct. And I don't know, I just kind of liked it. It's, it's also a matter of taste. I thought it fits well to what I wanted to convey. You know, the effect that it had on me was, I mean, there's 
generally when I'm reading something, there's two, there's two appetites. One is for the story. The other is for facts, data, information. When I'm reading something in the past that sounds a little more historical, I, I really want to, I tend to want to chew on the footnotes as well and to kind of look at the details. But, um, you know, on the other hand, I, I just wanted to know what was going to happen to these guys, to oh. both of them. And um, I felt like, yeah, using the present tense really drew me into the um, oh. the story of who these people were and what was going to happen to them and who antagonists were. This character, Rotor, oh my God, he seems like the perfect bad guy. Yeah, he is the perfect bad guy. He was the bloodhound of Göring who persecuted the group and uh, did a lot of harm. And later on in West Germany after the war, continued with his career as a judge and um, never was sentenced for his crimes. He worked, he must have worked for the Galen group. Yeah, he, he, like quite a few Nazis later on worked for intelligence, West German intelligence always being U.S. intelligence or very close to U.S. intelligence. Working against evil communist networks that were, in fact, threatening the West. So um, it was, you know, uh, it made sense to employ the old Nazis with their hatred of communism and their, you know, old connections um, in the emerging Cold War. I'm just trying to think of there other, ex- I wonder if there are other examples of that East-West cooperation. I mean, on one hand, because we looked at it in the, during the post-war, as, oh, they were working for the communists. They were trying to help the Soviets. But at the time, they were, they were cooperating with our allies. I mean, Harrow never said, I'm only going to leak information to the Soviet Union. Um, I described this one case and the Bohemians, where he tried to leak information to the uh, Western allies uh, because the Nazis had decoded the uh, ships that were uh, going through the northern seas from British and American ships. Um, and Harrow knew that the Germans knew the code that these ships were using to communicate, and he tried to get that information to the British to save British lives. So he was basically talking to everybody who was who was against Hitler, trying to help e- trying to help Hitler's enemies. That those Hitler's enemies were his friends. If they were Russian or American or British, it didn't really matter. But it seems that they were already kind of parsing up the information from uh, underground groups based on their loyalties. Was it Western? Was it Russian? I mean, I think he mentioned that, that initially his information was, was rejected because he was also yeah. helping. Well, I mean, there was a point when Arvid Harnack, his close friend, was still talking to the Americans and to the Russians. And he said to um, Donald Heath, that was his contact at the American embassy, that he wants to be like a bridge between America and and the Soviet Union, giving information in both directions, being able to pass on messages between the two sides. And the Americans flatly, flatly rejected this. They did not want to communicate with the Soviet Union on this level. You know, there was the officers club in Berlin was called the Harnack House. Well... Harnack is a very influent was a very influential family. His he was a professor at at the Freie Universität or something. Yeah, I think his uncle was uh, the most known Harnack, so probably it was named after him. Because I don't think Arvid, as a communist spy, as he, which he was labeled later <laughs> by U.S. intelligence, would be you know they would view, they would n- name a, a U.S. facility after him. But the Harnack family is a very respected intellectual family, academic family. Oh, it must have been the same family. Yeah, it was originally set up to promote um, science and learning. And Yeah, that was his uncle's um, 
life. Part of the Max Planck Institute. Yeah, I think his his uncle actually formed the Max Planck Institute. He was crucial in forming um, these and, and making sure that the German academic institutions are on top level worldwide. Well, you know, a few more questions. I mean, I really, really enjoyed the book. And um, I think it's some of the promotion for the book. There's some talk about how there's questions of, you know, how do people resist? Like, how do you resist outside of just using a hashtag? Have, have people been asking you about that in your... Well, I mean, I ask myself this question, how do you resist a dictatorship, especially the Nazi dictatorship? It's very difficult, very dangerous and how can you actually do something that makes a difference? Or if you realize that probably what you are doing is not even going to make a difference, will you still keep doing it? And does that actually make a difference? Because other people, maybe only a dozen, see that you're not you know, doing you know, the bad thing, but you're doing something against the grain. I think these are interesting questions that I'm trying to examine in the Bohemians. We're seeing right now in the United States a big you know, movement that is in a way a resistance movement. But before this uh, Black Lives Matter movement, there was basically nothing. And there's nothing in Germany and there's you know, nothing anywhere, even though we're seeing that the Western world is kind of uh, declining or our democratic institutions and ways of life are eroding. And we're doing nothing. So... It's interesting that now in the United States, there is movement, and I think we need movement. We need a lot more movement. So I think questions and, and uh, the topic of resistance is, is, is quite interesting right now, or contemporary, because we do have fundamental problems. We're basically destroying the planet if we continue living this way. Yeah, this, is, this was part of the fun of the book to kind of try to figure out what can I do, what should I do, when do I become guilty by just being like a consumer and um, not an active person. But I'm still, I don't, I don't have all the answers, actually, not at all. You know, I'm just, I'm just a writer, basically. But I think writing also is a, can be an act of resistance. And this is how I see my, my role as um, writing about historical topics. This uh, this guy Weizenman, the third wheel of the relationship. Weizenborn. Weizenborn. I'd never read any of his work before, but God, his description of um, his description of Haro. Here he was in the Gestapo, young, talented, clean, tortured messenger of the world to come. He had everything behind him now, struggle and torment. These were his last hours in the basement. Here stood the Germans, hope, bold, pure, and young. In those days in which human lives were as cheap as blackberries. In those days, I understood the greatness and strength of the human race. Blackberries struck me. Is that a common term? <laughs> I thought. Well, it's a poetical. Isn't it wonderful? Yeah. Yeah, it's very good. He's a good writer. I also had never really read him before. He's not that known. I mean, he's kind of known as this leftist writer. He was a friend of Bertolt Brecht, and so he comes out of these circles. I actually met his um, his son. Who also gave me. Uh, good information on the group and on his father and on the affair with Libertas. So Weismann is certainly an interesting guy. And actually now in Germany, they're republishing his books. So he has like a second wave of recognition. There's a lot more that I read by him. It's interesting, but also you have to, it has to be treated carefully because sometimes he's just interested in, in, he's just interested in writing well. And I found some things that he wrote about the group which could not have been true. So he was already writing the movie version. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, he was living in the movie and writing the movie, and 
you know, probably confusing reality with, with fiction. And But it's interesting, he was in Gestapo, in the Gestapo prison, and he actually got out. So he was probably a good narrator, because in the hands of the Gestapo, the only thing that got you out was the way you talked to them. Talk apparently was good enough for them to, smart enough, so they actually had to release him. Yeah, it seemed like they really used their intellect against the Nazis, especially Libertas as well, how she justified becoming a housewife, right? Denouncing her Nazi membership. Yeah, that's brilliant. She just wrote that, how can I be, you know, still a Nazi party member with all the duties? If I'm, if I just married this wonderful man, and I just want to be a housewife and stay at home and cook and because this was, you know, obviously in this was, you know, in in line with Nazi ideology. So they couldn't say anything against that. She even took it, you know, one step further that you can't even be a, a, a member of the party if you're a woman. If you're a woman, you're just a servant of your husband, which obviously she meant in an ironic way. But the people who read those lines had to take them seriously because, you know, they were not the, they were the Nazis. You know, it seems like the Bohemians, I mean, they were romantics too, like in a literary sense. I mean, were they, but it got me thinking, was there anyone back then, did they have, they didn't have Hitler to compare anyone to? I mean, did they, was there a, a sense of how bad things could possibly get? No, I mean, Harold always painted the picture very bleakly early on in 39, for example, when the war started, he said, this is going, going to last for a while. It's going to get really bad. I think anyone was surprised by concentration camps and mass murder in the millions of the Jews and the horrors of the Eastern Front. I don't think anyone, I've never read an account of anyone, you know, imagining a con- Auschwitz before it actually happened. But I don't think Howell was surprised by it when he found out more. I mean, Libertas found these photo documents which she collected. She was totally shocked. I don't think Harold was so shocked and surprised because he expected the worst because he experienced the worst already in 1933 when he was tortured. Yeah, when he was tortured. One of my questions was, how do you mentally prepare for torture? Might be a little heavy, a question to throw at you, but I, but it also got me thinking, what was your, what was sort of your attraction to the character of Haro? You look like him a little bit, how you were drawn to him. And if you did write this as a film, would he still be your central character? I think actually it would be a TV series because the, the material is so vast that it would be hard to do it in a, in a 90 or 120 minute movie. Um, I think he would be the main character because he's the most charismatic and basically the motor of the, of the group. He held it all together, even though he was not the boss. He never wanted to be the boss. He said that this would be the wrong approach where, you know, everyone's equal and we don't have any hierarchies. I was just attracted by his libertarian or i don't know how to say it or even sometimes anarchistic or unorthodox way of behaving and then he said yeah if we want to be against the patriarchal dictatorship of the nazis we also have to liberate the women which means if libertas my wife wants to sleep with other men maybe i'm going to be really jealous but maybe this is how it has to be maybe this is you know the really radical approach to forming a new kind of you know, way to act and live together. So I think he's quite, he's quite brave and funny and interesting. And I think I would have liked to meet him. I think it would have been very interesting to, very impressive, actually. Most people were very impressed by him when they met him. He's very charismatic, even though he was so young. And he wanted to be a writer. So there's a few things that I have in common with him. I don't know if I'm as charismatic as him, because I don't have a group. I'm just a lonely writer. Maybe I'm more like... <laughs> A mix between him and Weisenborn, in love with Libertas, maybe. 
searching for my libertas. I mean, all her pictures, she looks like she just has this abject lack of self-consciousness. Yeah, I think she was an intense, interesting um, person, poetic and direct and sensual and intelligent. And I think she was quite a woman, actually. You also wrote Blitzed, Drugs in Nazi Germany, it's 2016. I remember in the book that there was like a, this revival of this revelation that the Nazis were using. And, um, you know, there's been some reports from people who have worked uh, on the set with our President Trump, you know, that he, he's taken Adderall in the past. I'm just wondering if you notice any, uh, any symptoms of Adderall use in uh, the leader of the free world. I mean, it's pure speculation, obviously. I mean, it would it really would be interesting to study his doctor report, doctor's reports, just like I was able to study the reports of Hitler's doctor, Theo Morel. But I think this impulsive tweeting, it's not reflected, it's not calm. It's, it, it's like you're being on drugs. Like it, I know this from my past days when I was in the Berlin club scene. You're like, you're on drugs and you write stuff and you think all these your thoughts and you put them out. Most of it's bullshit. But you're so convinced of yourself because you feel very well physically that your self-censorship is lowered. Um, and, and sometimes I think that Trump is uh, acting uh, in, the, in this way. And I mean, he's quite old and old people use drugs. I mean... Old people usually take like 20 pills a day. And if I was the president of the United States, I mean, even, not even, but for example, John F. Kennedy was much younger, but he took a lot of drugs while he was president. He had back pain. He got uh, methamphetamine, apparently, from Max Jacobs and his doctor. I think quite a lot of politicians under this intense stress take things. If it's just, you know, we take we take things all the time. We drink coffee, so we're more, you know, in the meeting, in the Zoom meeting, which is important. Maybe we drink a coffee in the morning, so we're awake. So I think Trump uses a, a lot of that. That would be my guess, but uh, I don't have any. I, and I read, you know, all these articles, what he's using. So it makes sense to me, but we don't, I don't have any proof and I'm not, I'm too far away from this guy to really say something about him. I think he crushes Adderall. He's got a little pestle at the on the desk. I think he just crunches it up. I also noticed in that you worked with Vim Vendors. We have something in common. I was an extra in the sequel to Himmel über Berlin. Oh, really? I played a bodyguard. I played a bodyguard for Horst Buchholz, but I was cut out of the film ultimately. I mean, the only direction I got from Vin Vendors was um, was uh, he kind of went like this, and he goes, "Could you move that way <laughs> farther?" <laughs> Which was out of the frame. So, but I, I just want to know what was your experience working with Vendors? What did you take? Oh, from he's him? a great guy. I really enjoyed it. Um, I became friends with Dennis Harper on set. And then uh, stayed with Dennis uh, in uh, Venice Beach for two months in 2010, that was. So the whole experience wow. with Vim and then meeting Dennis Hopper, being in Hollywood and learning a little bit about the film world was great. I think Vim is a, is a great guy. I, I really appreciated how he was working with actors and maybe except with you. <laughs> but I think maybe it just were. He just had bad luck, but he's a, he's he's good. I like him. He's, we're still friends. So that's about it. That's all I got. Thanks for being on the live drop. Sure thing. <laughs> <laughs>